I invite you to please open your Bibles to page 1139, I believe, in your pew Bibles, as long as we have the same Bible. I think so. Luke 14. If you're new here, if you go to the New Testament, it's a third book in. So Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's important to note that we find ourselves in the middle-ish of what is typically called Jesus' Jerusalem journey. It's what sets Luke apart uh, largely from the other Gospels is that there's this large portion in the middle where Jesus is very explicitly headed towards Jerusalem. His face is fixed on it, meaning that he knows what he's about to do and he knows what's about to happen to him. And he's resolute he is deliberate in his journey to Jerusalem. Just prior to our passage, he takes a break from his journey and he sits and has dinner with a Pharisee. And he gives them the parable of the great, great banquet, the parable of the wedding feast, and now we find him outside again. And so Luke 14, starting at verse 25. Starting at verse 25 of Luke 14 and going all the way to verse 33. This is the word of the Lord. Now great crowds accompanied him, that is Jesus, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is the word of the Lord. Before we begin, let's ask the Lord for his blessing upon the preaching of his word. Father in heaven, we come to you now pleading that you would send us your spirit. Reveal your word to us this afternoon that we may know what it is you would like us to be challenged by, what it is you would like us to be encouraged by. Lord, show us Jesus. Show us Jesus. Allow us to love him more because of these words. Allow us to seek to serve him more and to seek to be his disciple more from these words. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is only one kind of disciple, only one, and everybody in this room is either that one kind or not. Now this does not mean that we are all uniform, meaning that it does not mean that we all look the same, act the same, or even smell the same. 
But yet, there are certain characteristics that must be present in every single one of us if we are to claim to be a disciple of Jesus. And these characteristics, we'll get into it, but these characteristics are both radical and both countercultural and even audacious. But before we dive into that, I want us to notice that what Jesus is doing here itself is quite radical and is quite different than what we would per perhaps expect Jesus to do and quite different than what a lot of pastors and a lot of churches do today. Because you see, Jesus is not, if I can use this phrase, Jesus is not seeker-sensitive. Jesus does not believe in easy believism. No, he calls those who follow him to count the cost, to stop and to think about it. Think about how different that this is than what we typically find in the world today. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. His face is fixed upon it. He's a traveling minister, and he has a following. He has a bandwagon that has latched itself to him for some time now. Great crowds, it says. Boys and girls, you might remember the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. Now, that means that thousands and thousands of people have been following Jesus. Jesus has a following. He's a religious influencer of his time. What preacher today wouldn't be so excited about that? To have so many likes on his Facebook page. To have so many hits on his blog. What pastor today wouldn't be like, yes, come, come one, come all, follow me. This is great. But that's not what Jesus does. No, Jesus, on his way to Jerusalem, knowing what it is he's about to do, takes the time to stop and to turn and to give them a speech that will make them stop in their tracks and says, hold on, you want to be my disciple? Not so fast. You need to count the cost because being my disciple is no easy thing. And there's a lot at stake if you become my disciple and fall away halfway through, stop, sit down, think about what you're getting into. Because there is only one kind of disciple. That's the theme for our message this afternoon. There's only one kind of disciple. And we'll be looking at this in three points, the three things that Jesus gives us. One, a disciple is a family hater. And we'll talk about that. A disciple is a cross bearer. And thirdly, a disciple is a possession renouncer. So there's only one kind of disciple, family haters, cross bearers, possession renouncers. Let's get into this. Point one. A disciple must be a family hater. Please look at verse 26 with me. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
Now, the first question we have to ask is, what is this whole language of hating our family? That seems a little bit contradictory, does it not? Boys and girls, are you not told every single week that you ought to honor your parents, right? To love your parents. Are we not told to love our brothers and sisters? Are we not told to even love our enemies? So it seems a little contradictory that Jesus would then turn around and say, you must hate your family. Well, did it get your attention? I think so. I could see when I said the disciple must be a family hater, a couple heads went up and said, what? What do you mean I must hate my family, right? It's getting your attention, and that's Jesus' point. He's using what we call hyperbole, uh, exaggeration in order to make a point. He wants to get your attention so that you ask the question, what do you mean, Jesus, that I must hate my family? Well, we see that this is not a, a question of either hating or loving in terms of affections, that you must resent your family in order to have affection for Jesus. No, no, no. It's, it's about allegiances. That your allegiance, your submission must be for Jesus as, a, as the highest priority of your life, even above your family. You must love Jesus more than you love those you love the most. You must love Jesus more than those whom you love the most. Even your wife, even your children. Jesus must come first. Now this is very important for us, of course, but this is very important for these people in this day and age. Because what following Jesus meant could have necessarily meant that they would have been utterly and totally rejected by their families. Think about it. Christianity was a new thing. Jesus just came on the scene. There are those who believed in Jesus, and there are those who rejected Jesus and kept going with the old covenant law and ceremonies. There are those who believed in Jesus, and there are those who didn't believe in any God or believed in a different God. And so the point is, if someone believed in Jesus in this day and age, they could have lost their entire family. And if they weren't willing to be rejected by their brothers and their sisters and their wives and their children and their parents, if they weren't willing to be rejected by them, then they could never be a disciple. Because that's what following Jesus could have meant for them. Now, this is actually not as different as we might think than a lot of people today. We can think of Muslim countries. Those who reject Allah and follow Jesus, right? Their lives are in danger. Not just from the authorities, but from their very own families. It is risky business becoming a Christian in an Islamic country. I was shocked, and maybe I shouldn't have been, when my wife Emma and I went to Mexico this past summer for some missions training. It's a very Catholic country. And becoming a Protestant, becoming a, a faithful, God-following, Bible-believing, Jesus-worshipping Christian would or could have necessarily meant the rejection of their entire family. Their whole family would cease to love them, would cease to have anything to do with them because they renounce the Catholic faith. 
You know, you and I, we, we might not have this. That sort of extreme rejection of our own families for the sake of believing in Jesus. However, I think more and more in our lives, this sort of dynamic is, is thrust upon our families. Not from one member from an unbelieving family becoming a Christian, but actually the opposite a child or a brother or a family member who has grown up Christian, grown up in a Christian family, and then goes away from the faith, lives a worldly lifestyle, lives, let's say, a homosexual lifestyle. And now the question becomes, will you accept, tolerate your child instead of follow Jesus? And stand up for truth. This is happening more and more. Not because this sin has come out of nowhere, but just because light has been shining upon it. What are we going to do when we need to decide between family and Jesus? Now, none of this is easy. I'm not saying that it is. And I'm not here either to give you the black and white solid answer that you're all working for, maybe. But this is tough. And this happens in our lives. We need to acknowledge that. We need to count that cost. We need to look to Jesus. We need to cling to Jesus. We need to tether ourselves to Jesus. Jesus calls us to love him more than even those we love the most. But then he takes it even one step further. He says, yes, and even your own self. You must love me, Jesus, more than you love yourself. There's no room for seeking your own kingdom first. There's no room for seeking your own honor first. No, the disciple seeks Jesus' kingdom first. I want to leave you with a question that you can take with you in your week. And I know this, this question will break down eventually. I, I understand that. But this is the question. Whatever you're going to do, whether it's work, whether it's school, whether it's entertainment, whatever it is, ask yourself this question. Am I doing this for Jesus' sake? Can I do this for Jesus' glory? And if the answer is no, then ask yourself this question. Why would I be doing it? If it's not for Jesus, if it's not for his glory, then who is it for? And why would you be doing it anyways? So a disciple of Jesus is a family hater. But they're also a cross-bearer. Verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple, Jesus says. Now I want us quickly... To not, I don't want us to load into, into this cross-bearing everything that we know about Jesus and his cross. And I say this for two reasons. One is because without knowing what Jesus was about to do, this phrase would have been shocking enough to these people. Because dying by a cross would have been the worst way to go imaginable. 
It's not just painful death, torturous death. No, no, no. It's much more than that. It's, it's public shame. You would hang there on a cross for a crime that you committed in the public square, and everybody would come, look at you, taunt you, mock you, ridicule you, reject you. It's worldly shame. It's worldly disdain. And so to put it bluntly, to bear your cross in its most extreme way means that we must be willing to die for the sake of Jesus. Now, thankfully, most of us don't have that. But yet we also must be willing to undergo the shame aspect of it as well. Are we willing to suffer worldly shame, the shame of the world for the sake of Jesus? And so this phrase would have been shocking enough to this audience without loading into it all that Jesus was about to do. But secondly, I don't want us to load it into it because what Jesus has done was unique. And we need to get that really, really, really clear. That our cross-bearing does not add anything to our salvation. Our cross-bearing does not add anything to what Jesus did on the cross. No, no, no. Jesus died on the cross uniquely as the righteous one, as the innocent one for your sake. Performing that one and only sacrifice that you and I need. And nothing we do, no cross that we bear will add anything to that. Our crosses are qualitatively different than what Jesus did for you and for me. So again, our day may come when persecution in its more extreme forms comes our way. That day may come. A day may come where we will have to choose between life and death based upon our confession of Jesus. A day may come where we will face jail time, whatever it might be. But that day, thankfully, is not yet today. But bearing a cross today might look a little different. It might look like saying no to your friends when they offer you another drink when you know you shouldn't have it. Bearing your cross today might look like standing up for purity when the standard fare of joking in your workplace is sexual and inappropriate. Bearing your cross today might look like not accepting cash in order to avoid taxes. Now, why are, These are crosses because in doing this, in remaining faithful to Jesus, you could incur the shame of the world. You might have a knock on your honor in the eyes of your friends, of your co-workers, of your clients, of whoever it might be. Are you willing to suffer that for Jesus? A disciple is called to be a cross-bearer. And again, this isn't easy. I know that. And you know that. That's why we must look to Jesus. 
the author and perfecter of our faith. We must look to Jesus and gain the encouragement that only he can give us, a strength that only he can give us by his spirit in order that we may say yes to Jesus and say no to our friends, to our whoever it might be. And then Jesus goes, it seems, on a little excursus. He gives two parables. And before we go to our third point, we're going to look at these quickly. Verse 28, this is the first example. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. With these parables, Jesus is trying to illustrate what's at stake. What happens if we decide to be a disciple of Jesus, but yet fall away halfway through? They show Jesus is illustrating the importance of carefully and intentionally counting the cost before jumping in headlong into discipleship until we realize that we actually have no idea how to swim. And so the first example gives the example of someone who wishes to build a tower. We could think of maybe building a new shop, building a new silo, building a new greenhouse. Right? And which one of us, before building one of these new shops, wouldn't first sit down with our accountants, our bank? We wouldn't first look to see how much cash we have. We wouldn't first sit down with our wives, probably, and count the cost. Do we have enough money in the bank to do this? Which one of you wouldn't do that first? To sit down and to deliberate. Because if you don't, then you're going to figure out halfway through that you got no money left. And you got to stop the whole thing. you got to abandon the whole project. And all of a sudden now, you have a monument of your incredible failure. Everybody who drives by is going to laugh at you because you thought you could build it, but you couldn't. I know, it's sad. The result of jumping into something without, without counting the cost and then failing halfway through is mockery. But then he gives another example. He says this, Or what king, verse 31, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Similar idea. What king wouldn't do this? Well, I got 10,000. He has 20,000. Probably work out. Let's do it, right? No, that's ridiculous. You, you would sit down with your strategists. You would sit down with the heads of your armies, and you would think about it. You would talk about it. And say, hey, can we do this? And the, clearly, the answer is no. And so this wise king sends a delegation and said and asks for terms of of peace. And so think about this: if the first example, the result of falling away from discipleship, is mockery. Then in the second example, the result of falling away from discipleship is not only mockery, but it is death and it is destruction. You will die if you think you can be a disciple but can't pull it off. Now, there's lots of discussion about these parables, but I think 
The main point that is being set forward here by Jesus is that these things are so obvious. Why wouldn't you look at your bank first? Why wouldn't you talk to your strategist first before entering into a battle you're surely going to lose? It's obvious. And yet, when we come to the topic of discipleship, when we come to the topic of being a Christian, a follower of Jesus, it doesn't seem so obvious that we need to sit down and think about it. I'm convicted myself about this. We just heard in the congregational prayer that many of our young people in this church have done their profession of faith. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I pray that you counted the cost before doing so. Because when I had the profession of faith, I don't think I did. Not as much as I should have. When I did profession of faith, and maybe this is true for, for many people in this room, there's also something else that happens. Other milestone that happens in your life. That you, you think about doing profession of faith, and then you also think about, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? Around that same 16, 17, 18 age. I think many of us, when we're thinking about what we're going to do for the rest of our lives, we, we sit down and think about it. Right? We ask our parents, hey, what do you think our, my giftings are? What do you think I'm good at? We sit down with guidance counselors in, in the room at Heritage over there, and we ask Mr. Snippa, what do you think I should do? Where do you think my, my personality fits well? We do aptitude tests. We do all sorts of things because we're sitting down and we're thinking about it because it's an important decision to make. But I think when I did a profession of faith, I did not sit down that much and think about it. It was more of, I'm done high school. I'm done catechism. My friends are doing it. So let's do it. Seems to be a bit of a disconnect there. And I hope that's not true for all of us. But what is profession of faith? It's publicly proclaiming that you want to be this kind of disciple. It's saying in front of your entire church, I desire to be a family hater, cross-bearer, possession renouncer for the sake of Jesus. Because I am professing my faith in Jesus. I am professing that I want to be a Christian for the rest of my life and I will live my life according to that profession. It is not just some easy thing to do. It takes sitting down and thinking about it. So if, it, if it's anybody here thinking about doing profession in the next coming spring season, sit down and think about it. Talk to your elders. Talk to your pastor. Talk to your friends. Talk to your parents. Talk to anybody you want to. And think about what this is going to mean for your life. And for those of us who have already done our professions of faith, we, had, we need to be asking the same questions. Have we been living like this kind of discipleship as we profess to do back when we did profession of faith? Have we been placing Jesus in this past year as the top priority of our lives in everything? Now again... This isn't easy. I know that, you know that. And 
So a disciple of Jesus is called to be a family hater, a cross-bearer. Because these two things are the things that we often get distracted by. Our families and our honor. Our, our honor in the world. Now what else is there? What else could possibly distract us from Jesus? And so we have a third cost. Jesus says in verse 33, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciples. The thing that distracts us are our things, our stuff, our money, our homes, our TVs. They distract us from serving Jesus wholeheartedly. Luke, in, in, in his gospel, gives us a couple examples of what this might look like, this renouncing all possessions for the sake of Jesus. We think maybe immediately of the rich young ruler. Jesus, asks, Jesus tells him, commands him, sell all you have and give to the poor. We can think of the disciples. When they were called by Jesus, they left everything and immediately followed Jesus. They gave up all for the call of Jesus. Now, you might be expecting me at this point to say, that's what you need to do. You need to give everything that you have away, specifically in the money bags of this church. But no, I'm not going to say that. Because that's not what Jesus means. I read the story once of three wealthy women who show what Jesus means by these words, right? It's not a question of, selling everything that you have, but it's a question of allegiances again, right? It's a question of will you put Jesus above your things? These three young, these three wealthy women did not sell all they had. They did not sell their homes and become homeless, give all to the church, no. But when a, a traveling minister came through their town, they supported him. They did not sell all they have, but they gave of what they had for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the proclamation of that gospel. Now, you might know this story. The three women are Susanna, Joanna, and Mary Magdalene. And the traveling preacher is Jesus. These three women did not sell all that they had, but they gave of what they had from the wealth that God himself had given them for the sake of Jesus. Now, the disciples, you and I, need to submit all of our things, all of our stuff to the mastership and the mission of God. And we need to do this realizing three things. One is that everything that we have isn't ours. Everything that we have is the Lord's. And the Lord has simply given, that, given it all to us as managers to manage the things that he has given to us and to use the things that he's given us for his purposes. And so that brings us to the second thing we need to realize is that God has given each and every one of you the exact amount that you have for the direct purpose of using that exact amount for his purposes. So if you have much, then you can use much. If you have little, you are called to use little. And if... The Lord so calls you to. Thirdly, we need to realize that, we, yes, we, might, we must be willing to give it all. But again, typically, we are not called to do so. And so I, I ask you again, 
to even today. I know you got plans tonight, but maybe tomorrow. To sit down and to think about what has the Lord given you and how can you then use that for Jesus? For the sake of the gospel, for the sake of ministry, for the sake of the church. What possessions are you willing to submit to Jesus? How can you use your car for Jesus' glory? How can you use your couch for the sake of Jesus? How can you use your TV for the sake of Jesus? And you can't. But it takes sitting down and thinking about it. It takes deliberate and intentional thought. How can I use all that the Lord has given me for his sake? Another thing to do, go home, look at your budget, if you have one. And look at the things that you purchase. Look at the things that you spend most of your money on. And look at the things that you give to the church and, all, and everything. Look at your entire budget and, and just ask yourself, how can things change for the sake of Jesus? Maybe small things here and there, maybe not. But again, it's, it's sitting down and thinking about it. To be intentional about it. And also, I, I, I do need to stop here and, and to say one thing. Think about how the Lord has already blessed you and has already worked in you a desire to do this. Right? I look around this room and I don't see money laundering hoarders. Right? I don't see people who are afraid to give money into the collection bag at the end of the service. No, no, no. I see people who have been washed by the blood of Jesus and have been sanctified by the power of the Spirit and already desire to do these things. And already do these things and praise the Lord for that. We need to celebrate that. We need to celebrate that the people in this room have been generous enough to provide such a beautiful building. That your pastor is not wanting. That there are many outreach ministries that you support. Praise God for that. But yet again, we need to be asking ourselves, how can we improve? How can we change things that we can grow in sanctification just a little more? How can we be praying more intentionally that the Spirit would work this kind of thinking, this kind of deliberation into our hearts and souls? So there is only one kind of disciple. Family, hater, cross, bearer, possession, renouncer. And I want to end then with two concluding thoughts. One is Jesus' very particular language here of discipleship in a discipleship relation, you have a, a disciple and a teacher, right? It's slightly nuanced and slightly different than the relationship between a servant and a master. And the difference is this. When a master tells a servant to do something, the servant just has to do it, right? The boss told, told me to do something, so I must then do it. But the, the relationship between a teacher and a disciple is slightly different. It's this. A disciple does as his teacher does. What that means in this passage is that Jesus, as our teacher, doesn't require us to do anything that he already hasn't done himself. Jesus right now is living this kind of life for his disciples to follow him, to emulate him, to imitate him. In. 
Who better than Jesus hated his family in the way that we've been talking about, left his own father in heaven to come to the earth that he created? What person more than Jesus hated his earthly family more than Jesus, more than Jesus in the way that we've been talking about? When his parents and his brothers came and said, hey, give us Jesus, he did not go with them. But he said, those who do the will of my father in heaven are my brothers and sisters because he understood it. That God comes first over his family. That the call of the Lord comes first. Who better than Jesus? And maybe I don't even need to explain this to you. Who better than Jesus bore a cross for you and for me? Who not only suffered immense suffering and and death on the cross, but also took the shame of the world upon himself, the disdain, the rejection, the mockery, the ridicule for you and for me, and not only that, but the curse of God himself so that you wouldn't have to. Jesus bore the cross first as our teacher. And who better than Jesus renounced all that he had for the sake of the will of God. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, taking the form of a man. And being found in human form, he was obedient, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus renounced all that he had first as our prime example, as one who did it for us. Because Jesus does not require you to do anything that he didn't do himself. And secondly, we might be tempted at this point to think that we're left empty-handed, that God leaves us in the lurch, You might say to yourself, Eric, well, you've done a really good job in convincing me not to be a disciple. Because it seems pretty hard, it seems pretty tough to to live this kind of life, and it is. Jesus does tell us to renounce everything that we have. But why does he do that? Is it just to test us? Is it just to see how far we'll go for his sake? Why does Jesus call us to renounce everything that we have, the the ones that we love the most, our own honor, our own pride, our own things? Why does he call us to renounce it? Because none of these things can save you. It doesn't matter who your family is. It doesn't matter how long your family's been in this church. It doesn't matter who your family is. It matters if you want to be a disciple of Jesus or not. It doesn't matter what the world thinks of you. It doesn't matter if the world thinks that you're some weirdo bigot. It doesn't matter if you have no honor in the world. What matters is if you have honor with Jesus, with God, want to be his disciple. It doesn't matter what things you have. You can't buy your way into heaven. All the stuff that you have can't buy you a ticket into heaven. And so Jesus calls you to renounce these things because you must renounce these things if you are to receive the hope of the gospel. That is only by faith. It is only by grace that you can be a disciple. 
It is only by the power of the Spirit working within you that you could possibly do any of this. None of this, none of these things will help you. Only Jesus, and only by renouncing these things can you receive this glorious truth. And not only that, Jesus does not leave you empty-handed. No, he, he showers upon his disciples blessings upon blessings upon blessings. We are called to renounce our families if so needed. We are called to hate our families. But Jesus also says that those who do so will receive 100-fold in this life. Look around you. In this room, you have brothers and sisters in the Lord, and that relationship, that brother and sister relationship is not just some abstract, feel-good sort of nonsense. No, 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 no. That is real. You are more related to the people that you are not related to than you are to those you are related to, if that makes sense. Because you have been bought by the same blood of Christ. You have a hundredfold family in this life, and not only in this life, in the next life, a thousandfold, ten thousandfold, a hundred thousandfold. Saints from all of time, from all over the world, are your family. If you live this kind of discipleship, we are called to put aside our honor in this world, to bear the cross, to accept the shame but so that God may honor you, so that God may give you the glory that even his own son has, that you may share in Christ's exaltation as you also share in his humiliation. He does not leave you in the lurch. You are called to renounce all that you have, but yet you will receive a crown of glory, mansions of glory in the next life. You will receive Jesus. The disciple may lose everything in this life, but the disciple gains Christ himself. Salvation. Eternal life. Eternal joy. So there is only one kind of disciple. And that is the one who sees what Jesus has done for you, who strives in the power of the Spirit to live as he did, and the one who gains everything in Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh Lord, we could never live this kind of life without you. We could never desire even to want to be this kind of disciple if you do not work that faith in us. And so Lord God, we pray that you would mightily work in us by the spirit of Christ to be family haters, cross bearers, possession renouncers, looking to Jesus as the one who went before us, the author and perfecter of our faith, Lord, who did all these things perfectly for us, for our sake, Lord, and that we may now live this life in faith. God, help us to be intentional with our lives, not to just go through the motions of daily life, 
thinking that all that there is is what we see around us, Lord, but that may we be intentional and deliberate with the time that you've given us, with the lives that you've given us, with the families that you've given us, with the things that you've given us. Or that we may say that we have lived a life of true discipleship by the power of the Spirit working within us. Lord, we pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ.